Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal. This is Global Reboot. Welcome to the show. There's a new-ish term that everyone seems to be using in global politics these days, Global South. Think of it as the new developing world, covering Latin America, Africa, and most of Asia. It's a fuzzy term because all of these continents are not quite south of the equator, and there are more differences between, say, Mexico and Somalia, or India and Chile, than similarities. There's a real danger to lumping together all these countries and acting as if they speak with one voice. They don't. And we've seen this before with other terms, the West, East, or First World and Third World, and so on. Global South, like many of its predecessor terms, is clearly a flawed way of grouping the world. But that's not why we're here today. Whether we like it or not, this is the term in vogue right now, and it comes up in every conflict, in every global convening, and in politics and academics. So we have to engage with it. The question is why the countries of the Global South are banding together, why they're so important, and what that means for the current moment. And for this podcast, how the so-called Global North, or the rich countries, can better manage relations with the South. What might a reboot look like? Well, I sat down with a really smart thinker on this topic. Roger Mohan is a columnist for foreign policy based in New Delhi. I've known him for years. He's a highly regarded thinker and analyst of Indian foreign policy, but also the broader shifts in politics across the global south. Roger Mohan is also a senior fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Global Reboot is a partnership between foreign policy and the Doha Forum. This is episode 7 of season 3. Let's dive in. Roger Mohan, welcome to Global Reboot. Thank you, Ravi, for having me. So there's a whole debate over whether the term uh, Global South is a useful term or not. But I want to sidestep that for now because it's in frequent use and it's the phrase we're here to discuss today. So let me ask you this. Why is the so-called Global South being discussed as much as it is? Why is it important? I would say there are two immediate triggers uh, for the sudden resurgence of the concept. The concept has been around for a long time and been dormant in the recent decades uh, in the academia rather than in the political public discourse. But I think the COVID-19 pandemic, the effect of that on a large number of developing countries and then the war in Ukraine, uh, which added to the devastation uh, around the world on energy, food and fuel, I think this together, the kind of magnified the resentments within the developing world uh, against the the West. And in the West, uh, there was a huge surprise that uh, these countries, so-called non-Western countries, were not really supporting the Western position on uh, Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. So I think these two factors came together to suddenly see, oh my God, uh, there is a world out there uh, which is different which is uh, taking positions not aligned with ours. So that's how I think I would say last two years, it's really uh, caught on political imagination uh, everywhere. And that's partly because the global south itself is not homogenous. You know, it's this vast, vast part of the world where obviously different countries have different positions. So on Ukraine, for example, 
China, right before Russia's invasion, declared itself as uh, a no-limits partner with Russia. But say the Indian position was quite different because India, even though it saw itself or sees itself as an old friend uh, of the Soviet Union, now Russia, it's still sort of acting on what it sees as its immediate strategic interests. So this isn't monolithic. But as you say, partly because of the pandemic, each of these countries feel like they're being put in a place where their needs are sometimes seen as subservient as those of the West. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say during the pandemic, I mean, the reluctance of countries that were producing vaccines to actually supply them, a lot of vaccines were being wasted in the countries which could afford them rather than being delivered to countries that needed them. And the economic impact of COVID and the lack of support, that magnified it. And then you have conservatives like President Trump. He called them shithole countries, if you recall. Uh, there is this sense that, look, we don't care for for this part of the world. But on the liberal side as well, in the West, uh, there is a deep condescension that has taken hold uh, since the end of the Cold War. Because uh, during the Cold War, you needed a lot of these countries. So there were people who were willing to engage them for whatever reasons, for strategic and other purposes. But after 91, the sense you did not really need them. It was really up to these countries to measure up to the standards of either Washington consensus or the new human rights standards. So it really seemed that uh, they're always up there to be judged uh, rather than engaged as uh, partners in any any meaningful sense. But as you rightly said, um, there is deep differentiation within the global South. A lot of countries have made progress, for example. South Korea, that was once one of the less developed countries, today is part of the OECD. Uh, you have uh, Chile, which is developed. And above all, China itself, today is the second largest economy. So what it captures is about a non-Western world or the rest, but uh, it doesn't really cohere as a tool or as a force that can change the world. And of course, it is sort of the term and the phrase and the grouping that ends up getting discussed a lot in our worlds, and, and that's why we're here having this discussion. But Raja, there's also a growing sense of the West's hypocrisy, isn't there? So you mentioned condescension. But there's also frequent accusations of hypocrisy, whether it's climate change, where the West has emitted the most carbon historically, but is best positioned to navigate a warming world, and it won't meet its commitments to help finance green initiatives in the rest of the world, or whether it's the so-called Global North's control of the post-Bretton Woods institutions, such as the World Bank and the IMF, which either have an American or European running it. Or there's even the UN's global agencies, for example, the UNHCR, which deals with refugees. So America donates the most money, so it always gets to choose where that money gets allocated to some extent. And there are criticisms that America tends to favor refugee crises in areas that it has interests in. As I say all of this, and as I think about it, none of this is new exactly, right? So why does it seem to be gaining salience now in the last few years? As someone who takes the world as it is, um, I'm not uh, shocked by hypocrisy because hypocrisy is part of life. And I think uh, all states, it's not just the West. Uh, China does its own hypocrisy. Russia does it. You know, India does it. There's no one superior or inferior when it comes to being hypocritical. But that's the way states operate in the international system. But my sense is why it has gained traction today is of the two immediate crises. And second, I think 
the relative weight of the West in the global economy has shrunk and a sense that Russia and China, for different reasons, Russia is not an economic power, but China is, that they're gaining ground and that the West is being marginalized in the uh, various uh, regional or other geopolitical environments. And in the non-Western world, I mean, I think the resentments have gained ground. And uh, when the West now comes to seek support on Ukraine, uh, they're saying, look, where were you all this time? Because on the one hand, if you think of the developing world, is far more concerned about sovereignty, right? They're the sovereignty champions. And here, the Ukraine case was a clear violation of uh, sovereignty of a country. That's where the hypocrisy question comes in. I think that uh, the West does its own interventions. Uh, it uh, Post-1991, didn't think much of uh, sovereignty. But when the boot is on your foot, I mean, then you begin to... Uh, raise the question. So, so I think that's where the, the hypocrisy argument comes in. But the sense is, in the end, the change, I think, is many countries in the global south today have the agency to make a difference. And, you know, to your point on sovereignty, U.S. President Joe Biden, at the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, often depicted that fight as a grand, part of a grand battle between democracies and autocracies. But it was only much later, several months later, that America began to describe what was happening in Europe as an issue of sovereignty, of, about borders, about the integrity of rules and borders, which was in a sense nodding to the point you're making that the rest of the world can appreciate distinctions over sovereignty much more than it can do so about democracy, which make it black and white as much as you want, but for much of the world, um, democracy is a spectrum. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, what is impressive is the corrections we've seen in the Biden administration's position. Because the democracy versus autocracy, even from his acceptance speech uh, in November 2020, you see that theme running. But then, of course, this is a very familiar American theme. During the Cold War, the U.S. was willing to adapt this notion to the real world in the competition with Soviet Union and uh, China in Asia. But post-1991, the sense that the West did not face any threat. So you could take this position that the, the West was so strong, it really didn't need to bother about sovereignty, whether it is the global economic institutions or the human rights organizations, the sense that you could tell the developing countries what to do. But I think reality, thanks to Xi Jinping and uh, President Putin, now, there is a pressure now to come to deal with the reality as it is. So as we're discussing the growing salience of the global south, how much of this has to do with the rise of China? I would say quite a bit in a way that the Chinese are trying to use the concept to mobilize and build anti-Western platforms. Uh, the Russians too are partners in this. For example, the BRICS forum or the SEO forum were designed as, look, the West is out to get you. We are here. We will defend uh, the sovereignties and the interests of the developing countries. And just to explain, BRICS is Brazil, Russia, India, China. SCO is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Yes, and we saw recently uh, both of them have been expanding to draw more uh, countries into the forums. But I think the fact is, for China and Russia, the Global South is an instrument. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, any day both of them would love to do a deal with uh, with the United States. But uh, to increase the leverage vis-a-vis -vis Washington, uh, they're willing to uh, use this stratagem 
to be able to bargain better with uh, with the United States. And as we continue to discuss the global south and acknowledge that it's not a monolith, it's not homogenous, we've discussed briefly China's role within this and Russia's. What about other countries? So, you know, you have India which now increasingly sees itself as a leader uh, within the global south, but there are other countries as well that have large populations and have growing roles, um, Indonesia, Brazil, for example. Absolutely. Uh, India, which has last uh, 30 years, the focus was on adapting to the Washington consensus on the economic front, improving relations with the US and other Western countries. But today, the India is also seeking greater influence in the non-Western world. But the difference for India is, unlike in the past, India is not seeing the global south as a trade union against the West. For it, the main competition is with China for influence in this part of the world. And that's why India also says we want to be a bridge between the North and the South. So India is taking a slightly more complex position because India is not anti-Western anymore. No, its principal contradiction is with China. On the range of other middle powers, I mean, you're right to point to them. I mean, whether it's Nigeria, Egypt, or Indonesia, Brazil, many of them see that the international system does not uh, give them the kind of respect and weight in the international institutions. So they all have a stake in making greater demands on the international system. To some extent, the West has uh, already brought them in. For example, the G7 became the G20. But the sense of not being part of the architecture, that is real. And as they look to the next 25 years, it is these countries that are going to bring in more GDP to the global economy. We are at an inflection point. Can the old Western institutions are flexible enough, uh, adaptable enough to be able to accommodate the emerging powers? Uh, not all of them are friendly, but some of them are. So I would say that's where the challenge is. And to that extent, the Biden administration is talking about reaching out to these countries and finding ways to accommodate them. But the struggle will be hard because for the West means ceding power, uh, rejigging the hierarchy. Uh, for example, India is today a bigger economy than many of the uh, G7 countries. So in a sense, you have to change the picking order in the international system. But that's always wrenching, isn't it? It is. As I listen to you describe the world, it strikes me that so much of the way in which we're describing the choices of countries, these choices are built around strategic interests. Do values matter at all? So I think it's never been easy to integrate values into foreign policy because there are always other interests that you tend to trade off. But post-1991, because of the absence of threats, values can be pursued without a reference to interest. But now, in the face of uh, competition from Russia and China and the rise of the middle powers, the U.S. has to go back to the drawing board of better balance between values and interests. Uh, I think that is inevitable and you're beginning to see some of that play out already. If you remember when Biden administration took charge in January 2021, one of the first things they said was, I will teach uh, Mohammed bin Salman a lesson. Then once Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, the oil markets uh, are up in flames, uh, U.S. needs MBS or Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince and the prime minister of Saudi Arabia. You need him to manage the global oil markets. So I think uh, U.S. has adapted, uh, trying to reach out, reconnect to him. My sense is states in the end, uh, interests will become more important than values, how much domestic constituencies would want it otherwise. Uh, so that balancing 
uh, has already begun, uh, I believe. You know, as we talk about global north versus global south, east and west, there's an argument that goes that what the world really needs is a proper multilateral system. So after all, if there's another pandemic or if aliens invade Earth, you need everyone to cooperate and you need a big global forum where countries can agree on things. But then you also need within such a big multilateral system, let's call it the UN or something else like that, you still need a, a big power that uses its influence and values to back it, right? I mean, do you agree with that? In the past, uh, you needed a strong hegemon to lay down some broad rules uh, on the trading system, like the, the role that the US played uh, after the Second World War. But today, I think what you have is a situation where the classical multilateralism of the kind that we saw after the Second World War and reinforced after the Cold War. Globalization, for example. The U.S. was the great uh, teacher on globalization. But today, the U.S. had to back off because of the domestic uh, interests and considerations. Uh, the same U.S. which preached globalization is saying, look, it has to be tempered. On the uh, security side, uh, the U.S. and China are locked in a conflict. Uh, they don't agree on many of the issues, uh, security issues facing the world. So therefore, multilateralism is under a deep crisis. You are essentially right when you say the problems of the world are global, but we still organized in a world of nation states. And within them, uh, the hegemony of the U.S. has been challenged. The great powers do not agree either on economic or uh, security issues. So therefore, it is going to be a period of transition to a different order. And, and that's where I would think multilateralism, for all its promise, uh, is unlikely to deliver in the near term. Uh, and that would take us to a more of like-minded coalitions working together to set new rules rather than hoping you can get all the 180 countries into one room, even if it is led by one country, to agree to a set of rules, for example, on, on climate change. And so on exactly that point, you wrote an essay this year, and it was titled The New Nimble Minilaterals. Not big multilateral groups like the UN, but the rise of smaller, minilateral groupings like the Quad, which includes India, the US, Australia, and Japan, or I2U2, which is India, Israel, the United States, and the UAE, or AUKUS. And minilateral, by the way, I should point out, is a term that was born in foreign policy in the 1990s. It was coined by one of my predecessors, Moazes Naim. But Raja, tell us, uh, why are minilaterals becoming more important uh, in the way you describe them? Precisely because uh, the large multilateral institutions are not working, uh, even in a regional context. Uh, for example, five years ago, all of us believed uh, ASEAN and ASEAN-led institutions uh, are the answer for Asia's problems. But then ASEAN today is not in a position to defend its own members when it comes to China's territorial assertiveness in the South China Sea. So therefore, what you have is the U.S. and others who are willing to defer to ASEAN in the past, are today saying, look, these guys are not going to be able to do the security stuff. Therefore, you create a separate institution, the Quad, which focuses on some of the public goods and is also willing to uh, challenge the Chinese attempt to, uh, to change the territorial status quo in the region. But there is a problem here, 
because you're creating a new institution, there was a lot of suspicion uh, in the in the ASEAN, that's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. So I think there is a lot of work to be done to reach out to these countries and say, look, we're not trying to replace the ASEAN uh, because even if ASEAN did not exist today, we'd have to invent one. But we also need to supplement its efforts because the relative weight of ASEAN vis-a-vis China has dramatically declined. Therefore, what the Quad offers is a balancing structure in which actually ASEAN can continue to do the multilateral work. Uh, similarly, the AUKUS, uh, for example, uh, that is uh, Australia, uh, United States and the United Kingdom, uh, they have this high technology cooperation, including our nuclear submarines. So this is the kind of work uh, ASEAN is not really equipped to do of bringing in new technologies, of strengthening deterrence against China to make China hopefully see and respect uh, a rules-based order over the longer term. So what you have is, Ravi, there is a multilateral structure. That's Nobody's going to dismantle it. There is a spectrum of institutions that are being created to deal with the scale and scope of the challenge that China presents. So this is Global Reboot, and we often discuss rebooting a big issue. And I want to talk about rebooting engagement uh, with the Global South. What is a better way for the West or for the so-called Global North to engage with all these many countries of the Global South? And I ask this question as we discuss everything from hypocrisy to condescension and, you know, all of these words we've been using about how the Global South often feels uh, about the so-called West. So what is a better way for the West to do business with the Global South, to treat the Global South as an equal partner, to conduct diplomacy with all of these countries? I would say it's a twin process. I mean, I would not uh, put all the responsibility on the West uh, to change the way it deals with the Global South. Because the Global South itself, I think uh, they have to work on their own individual agency that they have. I think almost 75 years after the Second World War and decolonization, uh, it's wrong on our part to keep blaming the West. I mean, there were a lot of problems in the colonial period, but to keep harping that everything is because of the West, I think is a fundamentally uh, avoiding our own responsibility to some of the mess that we have created in each of our own countries. So, so therefore, we need to be more pragmatic too. But on the West, I would say, my advice is simple, you know, follow your interests. That is, if you see sovereignty is important, please respect that sovereignty in the developing countries. Uh, for example, I mean, do you see this critique? The U.S. is willing to look the other way when something happens in uh, with Israel, but is uh, very superly critical with the with the other countries. So while hypocrisy will be there, the important thing is if the West says, "Look, these are my interests. I am willing to negotiate on the basis of those interests." And then I think you'll get a different framework whether it is on uh, economic issues, uh, whether it is on uh, climate-related issues, an interest-based approach rather than the sense, I have the answer for all the global problems. I have the rule book. The question is, how do the so-called Global South relate to this? And for the Global South to say, please give me more money, give me more money, uh, that's also not going to take us anywhere. Uh, we got to say, look, what are we doing with our resources? Uh, what are we doing with our societies? Can we reduce corruption? Can we reform ourselves? So I think there will be need for movement on both the ends. And Raja, some of this is also about equity too, right? So the Global South wants more and better access to financing 
We're taping this discussion uh, amid uh, COP28, the UN's climate summit, where financing is definitely a big issue. And then there's also the fact that countries in debt crises, uh, so Sri Lanka uh, or in Egypt, for example, they access capital at much higher interest rates. And then when they turn to the IMF, they usually only get help if they impose very tough austerity measures. Meanwhile, rich Western countries often have much better access to capital. Is that part of this equation as well of things that the global South tends to be unhappy about, but wants better terms of engagement from the rich Western countries or global North? I think you must also accept there was some irresponsibility on the part of the developing countries too. The notion that you could simply take what the Chinese give you without asking too many questions without doing due diligence. Many of the debt crises in the developing world are linked to the kind of practices that China has adopted. In the anti-Western rhetoric, you're quite happy to buy into the Chinese framework, which today has got a lot more countries into trouble. And you compare China to other lending practices, uh, I would say in some ways the IMF is better than what you get from the Chinese. Today, Sri Lanka is being rescued by a joint effort of uh, its friends uh, working through the IMF. Uh, second, the U.S. itself is questioning some of the elements of the Washington consensus. We've heard Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security Advisor, say, look, it's not the White House's job to open the financial markets uh, of the developing countries to Goldman Sachs. If you want to rebalance the world, I think many of these issues uh, have solutions, but those need to come from a pragmatic basis uh, and, and through a political rejigging rather than a morality play or a moral argument. Look, there is inequity, there's injustice, but that's that's always been the case in the international system. The question is, can we turn the current situation to advantage to both sides? And as much as we're using the term uh, Global South, however unsatisfactory the term is, what would a good relationship between the North and South look like? If you take purely in terms of population, look, the Global South is concentrated in a few large countries, right? So can you work with the so-called middle powers and find a way of uh, developing a shared agenda? That's one kind of a cooperation that can be considered. Other is there are specific groups of countries which are problems of their own. For example, the island states. A small island states, uh, any climate change, uh, they're really at the high risk. So dump them into Global South is not going to be of much help. So can the major powers come together or can a like-minded coalition come together and say, look, small island states today are the most vulnerable to climate change. What is it that we can do to assist them? Or when it comes to uh, energy deficiency today, uh, the oil prices as they go up, is there a way you can address some of the most vulnerable sections uh, in the international system on the energy issues? I would say issue-based coalitions, functional coalitions, rather than this grand design of North and South working together. We tried that in the 1970s, the new international economic order, the new international information order. Uh, all that, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a mirage. It didn't go very far. So I would say practical, functional, issue-based cooperation would be far more successful than the kind of binding that we do. You know, we began this interview discussing the rise of the Global South as a term, as a phrase that we use and deploy to discuss a large part of the world. But from what you're saying, it seems to me that we probably won't be using this phrase for too long. 
Absolutely, because uh, we've seen this uh, happen before. So I would say, if you think of the encounter between the West and the non-Western world, going back to 400 years, and when the non-Western world began to regain a sense of itself, we saw a series of political movements that emerged at the dawn of the 20th century. Pan-Asianism, Pan-Americanism, Pan-Africanism, Pan-Arabism, Pan-Islamism. The sense of bringing people together to deal with the dominance of the West. But we saw in each of these cases, conflicts within Asia, within Africa, within the Islamic world, prevented the idea that these countries can come together to shatter the dominance of the West. Similarly, the idea of G77, the non-aligned movement, the so-called third world. But in all these cases, the internal contradictions within each of these groupings are so severe, their capacity to actually bargain with the collective West or the North is really very, very, very limited. And meanwhile, we've seen some countries progress. Uh, South Korea is one example. Even China, for example, have benefited from Western capital in collaboration with the, with the Western countries. So I think those countries that are willing to seize the agency that they have, use the possibilities of the global market to lift up their own people, uh, that itself will be a major contribution. I would argue, rather than thinking in a trade union terms, to be able to reform ourselves, to be able to work with the opportunities that exist in the, in the North, uh, that would be far more credible than simply resorting to the slogans of the past, uh, which can't be pursued beyond a point. Raja Mohan, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ravi, for having me here. And that was Raja Mohan, an Indian academic and scholar and also a columnist at Foreign Policy. Global Reboot is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Ola Tunji Osho-Williams and Dan Efron. Next week, you will hear from Borge Brende. He is the former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Norway. He's currently the president of the World Economic Forum. And we're going to build on today's discussion by talking about how to get countries to cooperate more. The global order seems so fractured. How do we reboot multilateralism? Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time.